Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're going to look at the story of the scouts. We're in Parshat Shlach Lecha. So we're in Numbers uh, chapter 13. We're beginning the first verse of chapter 13. So we're going to begin reading the story of the scouts, uh, and then we're going to, as always, uh, unpack some stuff. All right. Something new and different. God says to Moshe, send people to scout the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelite people. Send one participant from each of their ancestral tribes, each one a chieftain among them. So Moses, by God's command, sent them out from the wilderness of Paran, all of them being important people, leaders of the Israelites. And then we get their names, all of them. These were the names, right, uh, that he sent out to scout the land. But Moses changed the name of Hosea, uh, son of Nun, to Yehoshua. So he changes his name from Hosea to Yehoshua. Okay. So Moshe sends them out to scout the land of Canaan. He said to them, go up there into the Negev and on into the hill country and see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak, few or many? Is the country in which they dwell good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it happened to be the season of the first ripe grapes. They went up and scouted the land from the wilderness of Tzin to Rehov at Levo Hamat. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, where lived Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the Anakites. Now, Hebron was founded seven years before Tzon of, Tzon of Egypt. They reached the Wadi Eshkol, and there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It had to be borne on a carrying frame by two of them and some pomegranates and figs. The place was named Wadi Eshkol because of the cluster that the Israelites cut down there. So this is how the elephant got its trunk, right? Um, At the end of the 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. They went straight to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. And they made their report to them and to the whole community as they showed them the fruit of the land. So they did not just go report to Moshe. They go and report to the entire people. And this is what they told him. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country, and Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Caleb hushed the people before Moses and said, let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the other people who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack that people, for it is stronger than we. Thus they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying, the country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And so we must have looked to them. Um, okay. So this is, um, this place, this land, Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha is a place that literally 
eats its inhabitants. It consumes its inhabitants. And they're freaking out about the Anakites and the Nephilim um, and the right the sizes of the walled cities. And we look like grasshopper to our grasshoppers to ourselves, and so must we have looked to them. All right. The whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. I'll give you something to cry about, right? So you can imagine how what's happening with God right now. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in this wilderness. What's going to happen? <laughs> No problem. Done and done. Why is God taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. It it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us head back for Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembled congregations of Israelites. And Yeshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Yefunah, of those who had scouted the land, rent their clothes and exhorted the whole Israelite community. The land that we traversed and scouted is an exceedingly good land. If pleased with us, God will bring us into that land, a land that flows with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only you must not rebel against Yotevafe. Have no fear then of the people of the country, for they are our prey. Their protection has departed from them, but God is with us. Have no fear of them. As the whole community threatened to pelt them with stones, the presence of God appeared in the tent of meeting to all of the Israelites. This is the verse. I know you're going to be a little surprised. This is the verse we're going to spend the rest of the class on. As the whole community threatened to pelt them with stones. I I don't like this word pelt. To stone them. They're being threatened with stoning. Like, The ED, like stoning, death. The presence of God appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. We're going to come back to this. God said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they have no faith in me? Despite all the signs that I have performed in their midst, I will strike them with pestilence and disown them. And I will make of you a nation far more numerous than they. But Moses said to God, When the Egyptians from whose midst you brought up this people in your might hear the news, they will tell it to the inhabitants of that land. Now they've heard that you, God, are in the midst of this people, that you, God, appear in plain sight when your cloud rests over them and when you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If then you slay this people wholesale, the nations who have heard your fame will say it must be because God was powerless to bring that people into the land promised them on oath that God slaughtered them in the wilderness. Therefore, I pray, let my Lord's forbearance be great, as you have declared, saying God is slow to anger and abounding in kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting iniquity of parents on children to the third or fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people, according to your great kindness, as you have forgiven this people ever since Egypt. And God said, the famous words that we read on Yom Kippur, Right, the big anthem. I have forgiven according to your request. Nevertheless, as I live and as God's presence fills the whole world, none of those involved 
who have seen my presence and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and who have tried me these many times and have disobeyed me shall see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. None of those who spurn me shall see it. My servant Caleb, because he's imbued with a different spirit and remained loyal to me, him will I bring into the land that he entered and his offspring shall hold it as a possession. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites occupy the valleys, start out then tomorrow and march into the wilderness by way of the Sea of Reeds. Um, God goes on for a bit. In this very wilderness shall your carcasses drop of all of you people who were recorded in your various lists from the age of 20 years up. You who have muttered against me, not one shall enter the land in which I swore to settle you, save Kalev ben Yefune and Yeshua ben Nun. Your children who you said would be carried off, these will I allow to enter. They shall know the land that you have rejected, but your carcasses shall drop in this wilderness. You wanted to die in this desert? No problem. Done. While your children roam the wilderness for 40 years, suffering for your faithlessness until the last of your carcasses is down in the wilderness. You shall bear your punishment for 40 years, corresponding to the number of days, 40 days that you scouted the land, a year for each day. Thus shall you know what it means to thwart me. I, God, have spoken. Thus will I do to all that wicked band that is banded together against me in this very wilderness. They shall die and so be finished off. Okay. So those who came back and caused the whole community to mutter against him by spreading calumnies about the land, those who spread such calumnies about the land died of plague by the will of God. So the scouts who came back with a bad report, D-E-D, immediately, like right now. When Moses repeated these words to all the Israelites, the people were overcome by grief, right? Now they say, we're prepared to go up to the place that God has spoken of, for we were wrong. But Moses said, why do you transgress God's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be routed by your enemies, for God is not in your midst, right? So yet defiantly, they marched and got defeated. So we have here the... Report by the scouts, 10 of them bringing a report of fear and two, Kalev and Yoshua saying, of course we can do this. It's a wonderful place. It's going to be fine. God, you know, God's going to take care of it. And if God is pleased with us, we'll inherit the land, right? And what happens? The people believe the other 10 scouts. They start to wail and weep. And they threatened to stone Caleb and Joshua, and God's kavod appears in the tent. Okay, any questions so far? Because they refuse to believe, because they get sucked into this, God has absolutely had it and learns, I think, that this generation absolutely cannot do it. This generation cannot build the kind of society that God is commanding be built in the land of Canaan, right? The promised land. Robin? I always like to talk about or learn about the what what how we can uh, apply all this to our own lives and the whole thing about not being afraid of obstacles and seeing the future positively and making plans to go and 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 to the promised land, but to go on in a positive way with our lives and not being afraid. Amen. 
right? Because fear doesn't lead to very positive outcomes in general, right? And not that we can't be afraid, but we have to address our fear and not act out of our fear, which is exactly what the Israelites do over and over and over and over and over. And Melinda? I think that if this is a story written by humans about following a faith and, and divine leadership, that there's a dangerous fine line here that if this is a story written by humans about how dare you question divine authority, that's a really easy slide into how dare you question anything that a human who is the voice of authority within our religious community should say. And, and that's, that's a, compelling and and scary for sure so there's always the reality that 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 defying god's authority leads to really bad things so of course there's always a slippery slope to then defying any authority within the tradition can become a dangerous thing 100% 100% however in the biblical text it is um in this case it is not about them defying god's authority in this story it is about them being ready to believe a report that is terrifying and negative and not trusting God who they have seen work on their behalf. How many times who said, I'll take care of you. It's going to be fine. That's the core here. And I'm not, maybe that doesn't change your concern, right? It's a slippery slope if you don't trust God. Okay. It's their faithlessness. In a God that they've seen act on their behalf with the 10 plagues, with the splitting of the sea, with feeding them with manna, with feeding them with quail, with bringing water from a rock. Like, what does God have to do to earn this people's trust? And that is where God has had it. And that is, if you really can't trust me, you're never going to live into what I'm asking you to build over there. You you can't do it. It's obvious, right? So so I think it's just a, a little different than authority. In this case, it's like they're ready to believe the worst. They start freaking out, and now they're going to stone the two people with the positive, right? So the, it's just like that. That's I'm not saying in other places you're not wrong or right. No, <laughs> I think here it feels a little different. The world of the story and the world of the writers of the story are two different worlds. And and, and, and the writers that- of the story are saying we tend not to believe what's possible when we're afraid. And terrible things happen when we live out of our fear and are unwilling to even consider the opinion of the other two. What do we want to do to them? We want to kill them. We want to shut them down. We want to shut them up because that would mean we have to take some responsibility, right? And, and deal with our fear. And they don't want that. They want to kill them. They want to shut it up, right? And that I think the writers of the story are dealing with the human condition and they know how disastrous it is when we come out of that and not out of trust um, in possibility. Okay. David, did you have your hand up? I did, Amy. Uh, is okay. This- is this, do you think, the pivot point where God believes that Moses isn't capable of leading the people anymore, that it's done, it's time to turn it over? He He's already, that happens with the rock yeah. incident. That when, when he gets angry and hits the rock, instead of speaking to it, God's like, you're not going in. You're... Moshe does lead this people. 
He leads his people for the next 40 years. So but, he's but not, not into now. Israel. He, that when he hits the rock, God says, you're not going in. Ah. So that, that's where that happens. But clearly neither Moshe nor this people, this generation are the ones who can do right, right the work. He can't be the leader and they can't be the builders um, of this just society that God is interested in building. Okay. So they both, they've all failed at this point. All right. So let's look at the Talmud and what the, and this is from Zornberg, of course. Um, what the Talmud does, she points out what the Talmud does in, um, in Sota, the Babylonian Talmud in Sota takes our verse talking about a whole nother bunch of stuff, starts to bring in stuff about this story. And with this verse, the verse states, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones, right? We just read that. And it is written immediately afterward when the glory of God appeared in the tent of meeting. All right, you'll notice already a different translation. When the glory of God appeared in the tent of meeting. So so what is that verse? Okay, let's look at it. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And it is written immediately afterward, the glory of God appeared in the tent of meeting. So let's look at that verse in Hebrew. Let's look at exactly what it says so we can be true to the text and very careful with what we're doing here. And all of the community said, to stone them with stones. There is no break here in the Torah. It go just like you see it on the screen. That's how it's written on the Torah. Here's the word avanim, stones. There is no break before the next word. And the glory of God, the presence of God, however you want to translate that, near eh, was seen, became visible, appeared in the Ohel Moed, in the tent of witness before all the people of Israel. The Talmud is saying, this is one sentence and they are related. And when you have, this is from Zornberg, Zornberg quotes the Maharasha, the Maharasha, mm. who says, when you have the subject before the object, when the verb appeared near eh comes before the subject, when the verb appeared comes before the subject in Hebrew, that means we're to read this in the pluperfect. What is the pluperfect? The pluperfect is God's presence had been seen in the tent of meeting. The pluperfect means something that's been, happened in the past that was completed before a certain time. So how does that change this? How does that change? What is the Talmud doing? Why is she bringing this forward? Because it's an incredibly radical reading that the Talmud has. What is the Talmud saying? Does it say it in Sota? Rabbi Chia Bar Abba says, this teaches that they took stones and threw them upward to throw them at God. That is what the Talmud is saying. By reading this in the pluperfect, because the verb appears before the subject, that means God's glory had appeared in the tent of meeting. And then the people took out stones. It doesn't say to throw them at Caleb and Yeshua. It just says to throw at them. 
So the Talmud is suggesting, such as Kalav and Yefuna, that the people are going after. God's glory had appeared, and so they took stones, and they wanted to stone God. They wanted to kill God. Because it should have said in Hebrew, God appeared. That should have been the word order in Hebrew. The glory of God, um, uh, no, near uh, the, the glory of God in the tent of meeting appeared. So it says, but the glory of God appeared in the tent of meeting. So the, the Vayerak vote Hashem, it should have said appeared the glory of God in the tent of meeting. The verb should have come first. Appeared what? The glory of God. And instead it says the glory of God appeared. So this switching of the word order, she says, means you read it in the pluperfect, which means the glory of God had appeared before they throw the stones, before they go to do the stoning. Cause in, cause you could read it. They go to throw stones and the glory of God then appeared in the tent, right? So do you see the Talmud is saying because of the word order, read it had already appeared. So that's the first order of turning this on its head. But to Dana's point, why? Why read it like that, right? There has to be a reason the Talmud wants to read it like this. And Zorenberg's going to help us unpack it. So we're going to start where it says, with all your heart, on bottom of page 140. The English psychoanalyst David Winnicott discusses the difficulty of acknowledging the destructiveness that is personal and that inherently belongs to a relationship to an object that is felt to be good. In other words, that is related to loving. So Winnic- she's going to go to Winnicott. She talks a lot before this, but we don't have time to do all of it. She goes to Winnicott, who's talking about the relationship to something that we perceive of as good, right? A relationship that is supposed to be something about loving, right? There is a destructiveness in that that she's comparing to what the Talmud just did. The primitive aspects of emotional development are often experienced as intolerable. The destructive aims of early life in which the infant in effect consumes the mother without compunction are felt in later development to be too ruthless even to acknowledge. The notion of health, Winnicott suggests, requires the capacity to take full responsibility for all feelings and ideas that belong to being alive. So what, what is this saying? The infant consumes the mother with no, there's no, there's, yeah, there's not, not just no regard. There's, um, there, there's no conflict. The baby just consumes the mother, period. That's just how it is, right? So, but later in our development, we can't even begin to conceive of doing that to someone, even though we did. Right. So we we can't tolerate that we have the capacity to really want to consume the other. And what happens if you consume the other? They're gone and you're alone. So they're gone is what is what she's going to stay with that dead, dead, essentially, which is what's going on with the Israelites, of course, is what she's going to suggest. The patient in analysis, therefore, needs to reach first to the destruction in himself 
before he can meaningfully experience constructive and creative work. Conversely, a platform of generosity can be reached and used so that from it, a glimpse might be gained of that which underlies the generosity and which belongs to primitive loving. Toleration of one's destructive impulse results in a new thing. The capacity to enjoy ideas even with destruction in them. This development gives elbow room for the experience of concern, which is the basis for everything constructive. The clinical cases at Winnicott sites illustrate this slow movement toward toleration of destructiveness. Otherwise, the result is either depression or a search for relief by the discovery of destructiveness elsewhere. That is to say, by the mechanism of projection. So if we can't come to tolerate our own destructiveness and capacity for destructiveness, we cannot come into creative, positive, loving relationships because we will either shove it down and project it onto something else and so get involved in some kind of violence you know, of another kind, be it verbal, be it emotional, be it physical, we'll get involved in another kind of violence and destructiveness, um, right? Or we just become depressed. So, so she's using all of these psychoanalytic terms to talk about what's happening with the Israelites, that they have been unable to tolerate their own destructiveness. They cannot deal with it. The people in the wilderness manifest some of the dilemmas of love and hatred, meaning those two things are there together. But can we deal with the hatred part? They live through the destructive urges that accompany the experience of loving. To love God or the land or themselves is a project that becomes possible only when they can begin to tolerate the full extent of their hatred. The God who performed many miracles for them, who freed them from slavery and promised them a good and fertile land, elicits from them both love and hate. He is uncanny, both familiar and strange, making inscrutable demands of them, to Emma Linda's point, massacring them by the thousands. And his land is inhabited by giants who consume those who live in it. Their revulsion against God and land is on Winnicott's model an aspect of their love that they must come to acknowledge and to some extent integrate. They need to live all parts of themselves if faith is to gain ground within them. For the catastrophe of otherness of a world gone away is part of the process of becoming a self. Okay, people. Okay. So we're going to do a little bit more. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot to chew on. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to be okay. Um, but part of the reason this really cried out to me in her big chapter on this, there's a lot that she writes. There's a lot of ways the Midrash handles this. The reason this jumped out at me uh, of the whole chapter on this incident is because it made me start thinking about, is this part of what's happening right now in our society? I don't know the link-ups yet. I don't know the linkage. But there's something about this that feels like psychically what we are dealing with in our society. We love America. We love the ideals of America. We love our brethren and sister Americans. And we hate them. We hate what America makes possible. We hate 
that, right? So all of a sudden, like, I was just like, is this something about what's going on right now? That the a real relationship to America and her values, not one where you keep the black and brown people down and the women at home, a real America and a real relationship of we Americans to the ideals of America. Maybe this is the beginning of the reckoning with what that really means, that we've been in a different place where we squashed it down and, you know what I mean, and pretended but really, like I said, you keep a bunch of the population home and disempower them and they can't own stuff and there's no generational opportunities for wealth acquisition and all of that stuff, right? What if we're having the beginnings, and this is so hopeful, I know it's crazy, but what if this is the beginning of the real reckoning that has to happen for us to become a self as Americans? That we have to reckon with our own desire to destroy part of what we love, that we hate it too. I sometimes feel hate for other Americans these days. I don't know about y'all. It is not something I'm proud of. It is not something I admit in many places. I've just admitted it in eight countries, but okay, whatever. So, but I wonder, the only thing that gives me hope about that is I wonder if this isn't Maybe this is what's happening. We're finally having the real conversation. We're finally beginning to really figure out our lived, fully American relationship to the ideals we say we love, the freedoms we love. Do I really love the freedom of some people to spew the garbage they're spewing right now? Part of me hates that. And or to shoot guns and to shoot children and then be able to say guns don't kill people. People kill people. I hate those people sometimes and I hate their right to go out and say all that. But of course, I want to defend their right to say all that. Right. So I wonder if this isn't some of what's happening for us. And if we don't face it, all of these amazing psychotherapists say we won't integrate. We won't have a real America with a relationship to real Americans and us really living those ideals if we don't come into real, honest ownership of what we also hate about what we love. Does that make any sense? Or is this totally crazy? Well, but I, right now I'm not so interested in God, right? I'm, I'm much more interested in, in, in their, in her analysis of their analysis of what's happening for the people and what they fail to do. Dana's asking, what about God in all of this? So if people are the actors for God, what's the next step? Define actors for God. I mean, on behalf of God. This is a failure. Let's be clear. It doesn't happen here. That's the failure. They can't tolerate their hate. They won't face it. They can't tolerate their propensity for destructiveness and therefore they fail. So that, so yes, thank you. So that clarifies for me your question. So yes, it isn't like they, because they're throwing rocks at heaven, they, they deal with it. They don't. They're turning it. They're turning their hatred towards, they're projecting it onto God or they hate the land. And so they're, they're projecting rather than dealing with their own internal capacity for hate and destructiveness. 
Biden is being heavily criticized right now for not taking a stand against what he sees happening. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not dealing with the hatred that he feels. Right. Yeah. I, I've wondered the same thing because I heard that this morning and last night that you know, some Democrats are saying he's got to control the narrative better, like or else the only narrative out there is the other one. And what does it show if you can't say with it, it's wrong what's going on over there. And so, I mean, I think it's a real dilemma, right, that he that he's facing. Um, you can see why I always bring you like just a just a little of her. I mean, because it's this four four pages is like a lot to to take in. All right. Um, those are those are the God host. Michael Eigen discusses what he called we're at the bottom of 141. Michael Eigen discusses what he calls the area of faith. So we're talking about the ability to develop a capacity for faithfulness and for faith, right? Which we can't do until we face this destructiveness and hatred within us. Eigen discusses what he calls the area of faith in the work of the great um, British psychoanalyst. By, uh, I was coming up from it in a similar way, acknowledging the otherness of God. Or of other people, this is where I am, right? Other people means entering into profound dialogue with it and ultimately with one's own otherness. One's destructiveness plays a role in the vitality of love. Think about that. Our destructiveness plays a role in the vitality of love. Perhaps this is what the Talmud intimates when it comments on the biblical command, you shall love your God with all your heart. Since the Hebrew for your heart is spelled with a double letter bet, levavcha, instead of just libcha, there's two bets. Why? There shouldn't be two bets. It should be your lave, your heart. But it says levavcha, two bets. The Talmud comments that one should love God with both of one's hearts, with one's inclination to good and one's inclination to evil. Tov and ra. Good and evil are expressed in love and hate, chosenness, closeness and distance, continuity and rupture, constructive and destructive impulses. Both must be acknowledged if the reality of love is to be experienced. Okay, let's go down to where I have a marking, which is cut off and yours. Bottom paragraph of 142. I suggest, this is Zorenberg talking, I suggest that it is only after the people have acknowledged the full extent of their hatred that they can register love flowing from them and to them. Their original acceptance of the Torah and its commandments gave them what Winnicott calls a platform of generosity from which a glimpse might be gained of their own destructiveness. Perhaps only after the sin of the spies can they begin to mourn for losses they have incurred. With mourning comes concern and the playfulness that allows one every day to regain the lost world. This process of acknowledgement, mourning, and play reaches a new pitch when Moses, she's talking about in the book of Deuteronomy, can speak to them at the end of the 40 years in the desert of their own hatred. So Dana, to your point, She's choosing to read Israel as a continuum and that it is this episode of facing destructiveness that is going to allow them 40 years later when Moshe talks to them to like to be able to be loved, to be able to love that they will get. She's treating it as a continuum where they eventually get there to start the project Um I don't think I see a difference between the generation that failed 
and the one that goes in. They it, they failed. Like this episode says they can't do it. They're projecting and they can't own their own propensity to hatred and destructiveness and they fail. But if we listen to Zornberg's way of talking about it, if you treat it as one, the people as the people as even though it's a different generation, the people as one, then the people eventually, with this as kind of the pinnacle, they eventually can live into being loved and loving and taking on the task of building the land because of this episode. There's a depressing counter-argument. There's a what? Depressing counter-argument. Okay. Continue the line and stop it today in the same Hatred here. Okay, but no, 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 no. It's not a counter message, I don't think. I think it is. We have to keep going through this process. But we never get there. We we have to get there. We have to get there. So that that's that's because we evolve, and some of us believe evolution happens like this. Yes, it's cyclical. Yes, we keep coming back through stuff, but hopefully it's a spiral, and we learn from the generations who messed it up. That's the reason we keep studying Torah. Don't do what they did. Figure it out. So we have to figure this project out or America will not last. America will go the same way Israel did. Israel became weak because it got torn apart between the North and the South and between the, the, we read the haves and the have nots of the eighth century, put so much tension on the populace that they could not hold together and they fell to Assyria and then to Babylonia, right? So, or whatever. So, so, so yes, the message is it didn't work. They failed. If you go to Micha Goodman, he'll tell you, look at, look at the end of the whole story. They wind up back in Egypt. Right. So it's a failure. It's a story of failure. But we read stories of failure, I think, so that we can learn how to do it differently. The whole Torah is here to say, don't do what we did. Don't do that. So what do we have to do? Yes, Mark, it's going to happen again. And it's going to keep happening as long as there are human beings. We have to take responsibility for our part of the arc, ARC, where it's like, let's not do this without at least bringing our best consciousness, <laughs> our best thinking to bear on what's happening rather than just acting out of our hate and destructiveness, I guess is what I'm saying. It, it, this, our conversation, what it, what it brings up in us can help maybe mitigate some of that hatred. If we can face it, right? I'm always trying not to be somebody who hates. Right. So I always want to deny how angry I am and how much I really do kind of want to destroy. Right. What's happening with a huge part of what's going on in this country until I really own that is what this is, is, is why this jumped out to me this time until I really own that. I can't fully love either. I can't love this country. I can't love its vision. I can't live passionately into an, an idea of faith in this country, right? And so look at this quote on 143, and then I'll stop talking. Look at 143. I wrote, uh, Rachel, can you share again? I wrote a little line with a little star to your point a little bit, Emmelinda. The kind of faith God waits for is not a dogmatic belief in his power, but rather faith in his love for them. A people who think themselves hated by God 
cannot trust the signs of his benevolence, however deeply experienced. To trust means to acknowledge the enigmatic messages of the other who is truly unknowable, who is absent in his very presence. God's enigmatic signs ask to be translated by human desire. George? Yes, I I think this says you can't reach the ideal, that this hate and love, the people who said uh, the Jews are replacing us, right? Well, on one level, they are competing and in certain areas winning. Affirmative action. Affirmative action says we should let uh, all kinds of people come in uh, to the schools or whatever. Uh, And in principle, we agree. But, you know, my son didn't get in there because he was white or whatever. So that what I'm saying is that we not only have to acknowledge it, we have to, when we do, it is not ideal that both the hate and the love have to be there. I asked uh, someone from the uh, ACLU, I said, why aren't you uh, deductible? And he says, because we keep suing the government. (laughs) And uh, it's right. They're uh, a wonderful thing, Uh, but it's mixed. Okay, so I, I, I'm just, I totally agree with you, but I'm going to object a little bit. I'm going to push back on, I think Zorenberg is quoting people who say, that's the ideal. The ideal is that we get it, that it's mixed. That we get it, that love and hate go hand in hand. Yeah, right. It's not antithetical to the ideal. It is the ideal. To have both. The ideal to is to have both. Right? Closeness and distance, continuity and rupture, constructive and destructive impulses. Both are mm-hmm. what is required to be a self who can love and who can believe they are lovable and who can develop a faith and faithfulness that is like this one that I described. It's not about dogma, right? But who can believe, right, that they can be loved. And then we can believe signs of benevolence. Then we can have faith in God's benevolence that these people don't have. No matter that God did this for them and that for them and this for them and that for them. If you don't believe you're lovable, you don't believe in the motive of the people doing that for you, of the whoever's doing that for you. Right? Then it takes the both and in order to become a self that can truly, a people, a nation, fill in the blank, who can, right, be able to build a faith that has the capacity to hold all the ugliness and destructiveness that we're experiencing right now. It's very interesting that we're we're keeping this within our own country because that's who we are. But I wonder if the Israelis need to ask the same question. Of course they do. Every 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 nation right now that's going through this, every nation that's dealing with severe polarization needs to be, I think, it's universal, hundred percent. Every people that's divided right now, and it's happening everywhere. And I don't think that's an accident. Right. The technological revolution, as Micha Goodman argues, the technological revolution has inadvertently pushed us into silos and into, you know, shards of the mirror that used to be the reflection of our reality. And we're each in our own shard. And that's pitting us against each other in ways that has never happened before. Um, and the intensity of it has never happened before. The fact that we can't agree on the facts lets us know that. Right. That we can't even agree on the facts. Was the election stolen or not? Was it rigged or not? Right. If we can't even agree on that, there's forget interpretation. 
you can even agree on the facts, right? So, so it's right. To some extent, facts are become irrelevant, which is terrifying, right? That's a terrifying thing. So, um, so I think that, and lots of people all over the world are experiencing this kind of now radical, you know, upset that is about, it's related to, I think, destructive, our own capacity for destructiveness. Um, I don't know how this is going to come out, but I mean, it seems like it, it, it's so easy um, to de- devolve into entropy, to, to you know, implode, explode or whatever. And it seems like more people need to be having this discussion that we can go to the dark place and come out on the other side. Correct. Because that's the only way. Because right now, I mean, there is so much polarization. And without that counterpoint to what's happening, the disruption that's happening and the upheaval, um, I, you know, I, I see that as a way to get to that other side, to be able to have more um, in-depth dialogue, to be able to see that we are, you know, all can be the other at some point. Right. And how we come together is what's going to make or break Correct. Hundred percent. And the capacity to hold our tolerant, you know, to build our yeah, tolerance absolutely. for knowing the other wants to destroy me and I want to destroy. Like, how do, can we hold our can we build our tolerance for that? Because it's the only way. But I'll tell you, it's not. Yes, we have to. And to George's point, go tell someone on the left. My kid didn't get in because she's white. Go say that on the left. And what will happen? It is not tolerated. You can't speak your truth. You can't speak certain things on the left and, and it's ignored on the right. Like it's completely denied on the, or you know, other things that we would say are denied on the right. You need to be able to, to meet that person, um, with that, that bitter pill, that truth. How do we, how do we meet them so that somehow or other it's tolerable or acceptable that that person that white person didn't get in because of, of, uh, is it, uh, affirmative, action. affirmative action. We have to, we, we, as I see it, we don't have a choice. I know. So the, the question choice. is how, like, wait, that's really the question we're left with. How? Each of us as, as individuals and as community, communities who are coming together, who are addressing these issues. I, I'm trying to do it in my small way um, with people who are on the right, how I can see them um, as as being human, having the same needs to be loved and and give love and trying to bypass, you know, this other path that we could go down very, very easily. But it's a conscious choice right. not to go down there. Right. How to find common ground, how to find and or in light of what we're studying this morning, I would say to better understand why they want to destroy me. Like what is it about me right. and my positions that threaten them so much so that I can begin to understand their fear. Because then if I can understand that as human beings, we can relate to being afraid because in some ways what they're about is existentially threatening to me. So if we can meet in that place of, okay, we scare the crap out of each other, like then if we can start to understand some of that, maybe, right, there's a glimmer of like a possibility. Yeah, George? 
basically what we're saying is a comp has to be a compromise, which means somebody has to give up something or both sides have to give up something. And those losses are not accepted by the people on the extremes. Correct. It's, Correct. The extremes are never going to be the ones who, who are interested in coming to the table a hundred percent, but, but most people don't live in the extremes and we have to be people. We have to be people who don't, we have to like, they're, they're, I'm not going to cede it to either side. Are you like, I don't want to be part of the extreme on the left or the obviously the extreme on the right. I think also that we have to address on a personal level, the visceral reaction we have to, you know, people, groups of people, uh, movements that really cause us to go ballistic. We have to address in ourselves before. I, I think that's why this spoke to me so much. I think that's why this commentary spoke to me is that I really have to be better about owning my own. Yeah, it's hard. It is hard because we don't. Yeah, because the thought, like she said, like Winnicott says, the thought that we could consume the mother is so horrifying to us that we won't own it. But it's there. It's there from from the beginning that we're ready to consume mom for our own survival. I just wanted to say, too, but then you have some actors um, in this age of technology who have totally, um, you know, agendas, <laughs> totally uh, subversive agendas that are difficult to to ignore and contribute. I mean, sure. contribute to the just the to this upheaval. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah. So well, it serves their purposes. Yeah. I was listening to a program about. AI and how, and how it can, <laughs> it's scary, scary out there. We're talking politically, but I think the place where I have trouble going beyond is anti-Semitism. I don't see any ground, uh, to come to a moderate accommodation with a real anti-Semite. Well, what about homophobia or misogyny? That too. Oh, so, okay. So I then mean, why is there are some, different? there are some lines like it's, that you can't cross. Well, right. But we're not asking to cross lines. I'm, Just accept the fact I'm that I'm asking, I'm asking, I think this is asking us to understand our own, yes. our own reaction hatred of haters. Yes. We want to say they hate. We don't. That's the fallacy. Yes. I think that this is getting at, or, or that, that impressed me was I like, hate. right, Amy, you hate the haters. Yes. You have to own that you hate the haters. Yes. And until I can do that, I'm stuck too. Like, you know, and that, that, that there's a, there's a way that I can't be a full self or my community can't be as effective as it could be unless we own our own propensity. So should we be expressing for, our hatred? I think we need to confront it and own it. And then what? And then hopefully be able to have more conversations where I can say, you know what? I kind of hate you too. Let's get at why we're so afraid of each other that we hate each other. I don't know. I don't look. If I had the answers, I'd be president. Thank God, <laughs> oh. that is not a pass. Okay, are you running? <laughs> yeah, yeah, are no. you running? Oh my God! Oh my God! The room goes crazy. Okay, no, there's not going to be a presidential run. Um, <laughs> not going to happen. But right, so I, I'm not saying I have answers. Truly, y'all know me better than that. I think it's a different way of asking some questions that leapt off the page at me. 
related to Torah that I was like, that is like, and I, of course, Zornberg's not talking about our political times, but I think the, the underlying psyche, psychiatric, the, the, the evolution, the, the underlying assessment of how we become whole people, right, is, is spot on. And I think we're living in a symptomatic time that's lifting up where we're not becoming whole people. And all I'm saying is I'm better at diagnosis than I am at, at cure or treatment. I, I, I like a diagnosis. It helps me feel like I have a little bit of control if I know what's happening rather than everything's just spinning out of control and there's no hope. So for me, this was about diagnosing some of what then eventually, you know, solutions can come if we can name the real problem. We say the real problem is them. And I just think this was a really important teaching about, okay, for sure, that's a problem. They're a problem. But can we own the ways our own unwillingness to own our hatred of them gets in the way of us really finding solutions? You know, Winnicott has, uh, <clears throat> gives an answer. It's a developmental and also a metaphorical answer. And Winnicott points out that what is necessary for the infant to be able to relate to an object, after all, it's object relations theory, to be able to relate to an object is not just to be able to accept one's own hate or one's own love, but to be able to integrate them, accept them and integrate them. Um, and uh, it's in that process that the capacity to relate to an object occurs and what Winnicott offers, and it has to be understood, I think, metaphorically, both in, in developmental terms and in terms of, um, trying to think of a way of saying it in English, transference terms. Mm-hmm. And that is that the, the baby has to learn that it can destroy the mother and the mother continues to exist and to provide and that the maternal provision continues um, even though the baby has destroyed the mother and, and, to, and to recognize yeah. that for the baby that's not um, something that is an analogy the baby really feels that it has destroyed the mother and the mother continues to exist so i think that's a great place for us to stop because i think that's what i was pushing for was this idea of integration like if we we have to own it before we can integrate it. So thank you for giving me a language for what I was trying to say. Integration and maybe in our example, talking about political reality, maybe the mother is the project of the United States of America, right? That that we we're afraid we re- we've destroyed it, and yet it can exist and continue to thrive and provide it. I know it's, there will be a breaking, there could be a breaking point. I'm not denying that, but I'm saying maybe that's where the analogy goes is yes. And the country survives, you know, the, the ideals of freedom and democracy survive and we're just got to hope mom survives America as our mother. And let's hope she survives and thrives, um, beyond may have estrogen beyond 120. And um, thank you all this so much for your attention and for your participation in this um, project. Thank you. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, 
www.ourki.org.